the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Brigadier and Professor Alistair Bruce of Crema, OBE, Knight of St. John, VR, ADC, DL, Colonel of the Regiment, the London Scottish Regiment. Now I think that especially men, but women too, are challenged by two very significant questions in life. Can I make love? And can I make war? Most people get the chance to answer the first. But the second one, it always sits in the background. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Welcome to the April 1st episode of the podcast, something I really wasn't going to do. I didn't have time. I didn't have a guest lined up. And I'll get into that story a little bit after I do some maintenance here. In August 2016, I circulated a survey, and it was on Facebook, and a couple of people responded, and I just haven't had a chance to go over that survey yet. So I wanted to get the survey done, and then I want to talk about the reason why I wasn't going to do an episode, and how I came about to get this episode produced, and then I want to get back to packing for Vimy so I can head off on Wednesday. Actually, by the time this episode airs, I'll already be in France, long gone from Canada. So the survey was on August 27, 2016, and it was addressed to the podcast listeners, and it said, please respond to the following questions. How did you find the Canadian Military History Podcast? How do you listen to the episodes? Have you watched the YouTube video? Have you encouraged another person to listen to the podcast? So those are the four questions, <laughs> different four questions than you're probably used to, but let's see what a few people said when they answered. So we have Lucia Nitsos, and I hope I pronounced that properly. She says, I found the podcast while searching for podcasts on Canadian military history, and it was the first one on the results page. Yep, I agree. That is a good thing that happens every once in a while. I've listened to them on my phone. I haven't watched the YouTube video just yet. I have mentioned this podcast to a few people, especially those who I know are interested in history. I'm not actually in the military. However, I do have friends in the military, and I'm always eager to know more about what goes on in the military. So I've been enjoying this podcast very much. Thank you, Lucia. We have Raphael Lagasse, and he writes, First time I actually noticed that I like this page. So I think that's open for interpretation, perhaps because Raphael Lagasse, perhaps he does not have English as his first language. So perhaps this is a good thing to talk about because I did realize that this show, because it speaks about military terms and military concepts, that people who are trying to learn English in a military context might appreciate listening to this show and help them with their vocabulary or their grammar while in a military context. So I always thought this would be an excellent resource for people people who are struggling to learn English. So hopefully that's why Raphael's answer was so short. Paul Riches says, heard about your podcast on Tutu Freaks. I listen on iTunes, haven't seen the YouTube video yet. I told a friend of mine whose son who was interested in the subject to listen. No personal military history for me, just very interested. Well, thank you, Paul. And Mark Grant says, I was told about your podcast by Lucia Nitsos. She thought it would be something that I would be interested in listening to. She was correct. I've been consuming the episodes at a rapid pace and thoroughly enjoying them and will be disappointed when I finally run out of episodes to listen to. Okay, I have to take ownership on that one and have to wait for more. As a serving member in the Royal Canadian Navy, I too have been thinking of the answers that I would give to your questions. I was delighted to see that you had interviewed two of my shipmates in your episodes. That's great. Thank you. I listened to your podcast on my phone, but I just learned about your YouTube video and haven't watched them yet. 
I have told some fellow sailors about your show, and hopefully they will listen. Thanks, Mike, for providing a great source of military stories that wouldn't necessarily be heard. Bravo, Zulu. So thank you to the four people that participated in my fun little survey. It was very informal. I wasn't trying to mine any data from this or anything like that, but it was very nice of Lucia to recommend the show and for Mark, and hopefully Paul and Raphael are also recommending the show to some friends. Mark, I am trying to get some Navy people on the show, so that's a source for you to probably help me out with. Okay, so right now I need to go over my little intro, why I said what I said. I wasn't going to do an episode for April 1st, simply, well, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because I did the episode with Paul Baines a year ago, obviously, and there wasn't many episodes in between. So I thought it was from a time perspective, it has been a year, but from an episode flow perspective, it hasn't been a good run of episodes between the two April 1st episodes. So I wasn't going to do it. And I didn't have a guest lined up. And like I said, I'm getting ready to head off to the 100th anniversary commemoration of the Battle of Vimy Ridge in France. I got some running around to do, some packing, and I was away in Ottawa for the weekend. So I really didn't have time to record and edit and wait for an email with images and produce the web page for the guest. What ended up happening was during my weekend in Ottawa, I ended up crossing paths with our guest today. Brigadier Alistair Bruce of Cronach, and he is a brigadier in the Army Reserve of the United Kingdom, and he is the Colonel of the Regiment of the London Scottish Regiment. So I currently belong to the Toronto Scottish Regiment, and the London Scottish Regiment is our sister regiment over in the UK, over in London, hence the name. So Alistair Bruce and I were at a conference this weekend, and he was the guest speaker at the conference. So the conference is the Kilted Regiments Conference, and basically what we do is we meet to discuss challenges and priorities for Highland Scottish and the one Canadian Irish Regiment in a Canadian military context. What are the demands of bands? What are the struggles of military bands in the Highland Scottish tradition? Where do we get our stuff? Can we align our various orders of dress and simplify what we're trying to build as a product for clothing, for equipping our people? And out of the conference, we realized that Canadian Scottish Highland and the One Irish Regiment are basically the guardians of martial Scottish Highland tradition. And what has happened in the UK, hopefully people understand, that the very storied regiments of Highland and Scottish tradition, for example, the Gordon Highlanders, which have stood for hundreds of years, the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, and many, many other regiments, they've all amalgamated into the one unit, the one Royal Regiment of Scotland, which I don't think is a necessarily bad thing, but I don't think it's a necessarily good thing either. They continue to operate. They continue to be effective soldiers. They continue to follow their orders and carry out their missions and objectives overseas. But from the fact that the Canadian regiments, the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada, the Canadian Scottish Regiment, the Black Watch Royal Highland Regiment of Canada, the 48th Highlanders of Canada, the Toronto Scottish, the Lauren Scots, just to name a few, we each carry on those long-standing traditions from each of those essentially founding regiments from Scotland and England. And of course the Irish regiment, we can't forget them. So I met Brigadier Bruce during the conference and we were chatting at dinner and he picked up on a cue that I mentioned the podcast and he asked me about it and then he was curious and he is a television commentator himself. He has done a few very significant events. He did the 90th birthday of Queen Elizabeth, did the Diamond Jubilee celebrations, the Royal Wedding, 
papal event, the funerals of both the Queen Mother and Diana, Princess of Wales. So as a broadcaster, as a professional broadcaster, and his experience in speaking, and the fact that the timing was right, and the fact that I didn't have to find a hole in my personal schedule to schedule the interview, I knew that, number one, the edit would be very smooth. I wouldn't have to spend a lot of time editing because he is a professional speaker, a professional broadcaster, and it fit the context and the timeline of when I'm going to put out this show. So basically, what ended up happening is the stars aligned. And also, I had a chance, a very unique chance, to test out my equipment, my recording equipment for on the road, for when I go on the Vimy trip if I want to do a spontaneous interview on the fly. So I needed an opportunity to test my equipment out. And you will notice that you're going to have to dial the volume up during the interview portion. So during the intro here, everything's fine. But when the interview portion does come on, you're going to have to dial it up a bit. So I'm going to have to fix my settings. But this episode was a good learning opportunity for me so that I could see the challenges of recording on the fly. And one of the things I do at home is I have copious amounts of notes while I'm recording. And when I went to Brigadier Bruce's hotel room to do this recording, I didn't bring any notes. So it was really taxing my working memory to listen to such a great speaker telling such a captivating story and then trying to remember my standard four questions that I usually have memorized. So I learned two things. I need to adjust my settings, capture greater volume. And the other thing I learned was that I need to have my notes when I do my interviews on the fly. So a couple of things aligned. A couple of things were just perfect. Brigadier Bruce was interested in being interviewed on the show. He approached me. He asked if he could, if it was appropriate. The timing was right. There was a necessity to test my equipment. And he's a professional broadcaster, so my editing time would be reduced. All those factors meant that there was no way that I could pass up this opportunity and turn Brigadier Bruce down on his offer. So here's my interview with Brigadier Alistair Bruce of Kriener. Brigadier Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's really good to be here and fortuitous that we had the chance to think of doing this. Absolutely, sir. Now, you and I first met at the Kilted Conference 2017 here in the city of Ottawa, and that's a chance for the Kilted Regiments of Canada, so Highland, Scottish, and Irish Regiments, to unite, come together with a little bit of camaraderie, but also to share some of our traditions, some of our dress, and some of our customs, and hopefully have a greater appreciation for the Scottish or Highland military culture in Canada but also to foster a future of collaboration, cooperation, make sure we preserve those traditions. I mean, I think for me, it's been a complete eye-opener because I was brought up in Scotland. I was surrounded by all the Scottish traditions of being part of a great old family. The Bruces used to rule Scotland with Robert the Bruce, my ancestor. And I don't think I'd quite grasped the degree to which Canada has taken that great Scottish tradition, protected it, preserved it, and even, I think, made it much more vibrant here than you can almost find it in the Scottish martial tradition if you go to the Highlands themselves. So it's been really, really wonderful. And I have a link, of course, because my forebear, my great-great-grandfather, James Bruce, was Governor-General of Canada called Lord Elgin. And he was carrying out the duties here of his father-in-law, Lord Durham, who was also a Governor-General, and he had written the Durham Report, which many people in Canada know much, much better than I do. But it's really special because both of them drove Canada towards parliamentary self-government in some way, to be here in the 150th anniversary year of your Confederation. It's very interesting that you say how the military 
the Highland military and Scottish military units preserve the Scottish culture almost better than Scotland themselves. But what we find is Scottish immigrants come to Canada and they preserve their traditions and culture much more here in Canada than they would at home. We see, and this is very common, we see people who say, I've never worn a kilt in my life until I came to Canada. They spend their entire life growing up in Scotland never wanting to wear a kilt. As soon as they come to Canada, they start interacting with their peers, their fellow immigrants, and suddenly they want to wear a kilt. And you see Scottish souvenirs. One of the jokes is we see tartan wallpaper on the basement pole and uh, dartboards in the basement and things of that nature. And it is very refreshing to see that Scottish culture being preserved outside of the borders of Scotland. I mean, it's arguable how old Scottish culture, in inverted commas, is in one sense, because we know that tartans were really revived heavily during Queen Victoria's reign. And there was a period, you're quite right, that many Scots didn't particularly feel that the kilt was necessary. But you know, that's really changed in Scotland now, partly because there is such an extraordinarily powerful political move to either remain part of the Union or to separate and be independent. And many of the people caught up in that, particularly a new younger generation, have adopted iconic moments of history, like the time when we believe Braveheart was supposed to express the reality of Scottish history. Of course, it's broadly a badly made historical film, but it captivates huge amount of interest. And young people who, as you say, in the past might not have gone for the kilt are now swathed in tartan, wear blue woad on their face, and feel this visceral Scottishness, which you either think is a good thing or a bad thing, but politically it's quite an interesting time in Scotland. Now we could talk about Scottish culture and Scottish traditions and kilts and tartan all day long, but we do have some questions to cover. Now you never served in the Canadian Armed Forces, so I can't use my typical question, but why did you join Her Majesty's Armed Forces? I joined because I always loved dressing up as a child, and in fact I wanted to be an Admiral of the Fleet when I was a boy. That's a five-star admiral in the Royal Navy, partly because my honorary godfather was one, and my grandfather was an admiral too, and I was terribly impressed by them. I don't think I'd ever realised quite what the consequences of being in an armed force would be until I tried for the Navy and I failed the eye test, and then I went to the Army and they said, well, you've got to do the eye test here too, and I was taken out into the tank park, actually by a rather humorous sergeant, who put my back against the wall and said, right, cover your right eye and I covered my right eye and he said can you see the tank I said yes of course I can touch it he said you're in and I joined the Scots Guards and it was again I suppose a chance to dress up but it had been the Bruce family regiment and I had the most wonderful time in London doing royal duties until we were sent to Northern Ireland on operations in peacekeeping duties and then later I went to the Falklands War in 1982. Now what were you like when you joined the military? I was what they call in Britain a typical Rupert in that I was the younger son of a rather grand family. I'd been to a public school which meant my education was paid for by my parents. I sounded very different from most of the others in that I sounded rather, well you can hear. (laughs) And the sergeants gave me a wonderfully hard time, and it slightly knocked me about, because I'd never really been knocked about much. And you really, really need it in order to prepare you for what does happen if you are required to go and deliver violence against the Queen's enemies. Anything else you remember about your early days in the military? Maybe an anecdote or a story? 
Well, I don't think I was particularly good at what I did. I remember that my greatest claim to fame in the Falklands War was not, I'm afraid, that I ran with a bayonet all the way up the mountain, being fantastically courageous. But really, after the battle was over, my commanding officer knew that I was an organist and sent for me to mend the organ in Port Stanley Cathedral, which was the principal church in the very small town that is the focus and largest of that small set of islands. And the organ hadn't been working for many years. The pedal section was not connected to the rest. And I tightened it all up and I made it work. And if you go to Port Stanley in the Falklands now, you'll see a little silver plate on the organ which says, repaired by Lieutenant Alistair Bruce of the Scots Guard. Interesting. Now, what was the world like when you joined? I never asked what year you joined, but perhaps you could let us know what the world was like when you started your life in the military. Well, I joined the army in 1979. I went to do my basic training. In fact, the previous year, so in 1978, I did my basic training with the Guards regiments. It was called Brigade Squad, where, in fact, I met Captain Rennie, who works with the Governor General's Guard here in Ottawa. And he was my barrack room corporal. And it's an extraordinary meeting last night to see him again. And I think the world was... Margaret Thatcher was elected into office while I was doing my training. And that was quite significant for the change of where the direction of the United Kingdom was going. I mean, I think that post the huge amounts of industrial unrest that had been, Britain had sort of given up. The empire was over, industrialization appeared to be over, and there was a sense that the nation was going to sleep. And she rather kicked it. And in a sense, it was rather exciting to be in an army when she had taken the reins. But for me, my world was very, very unknown, in a sense. I had no idea what I was going to be required to do. I just knew that I had to get through the next day's training. And in a sense, the wonderful thing about the armed forces is that hopefully it puts every single man and woman within it outside their comfort zone. Because then when you achieve what you're set to do, you feel fantastic. And it's driven me through all the other things that I do in life because I left the army in 1983 and I went into television and I've been making television programs. I made Downton Abbey. I made The King's Speech, which is a rather fun film. You know, you always set these huge challenges. But if you remember what you were taught in those early days as a military person and the pressures you were put under and the way in which you looked after your team and the way in which they looked after you, if you can take that into any task, you will A, enjoy it even more, and B, you'll help everybody around you get the very best out of the challenge. I agree. Yeah, Sometimes we have to take those challenges head on. It, you find that difficulty, but I also believe that you learn more from failure than you do from having a success. And to have a supervisor or a commander that would allow that failure so that you can learn from it and move on, that's something that developing members of the military need to have to benefit and grow and become better. Well, Bob Dylan said there's no success like failure and failure is no success at all. So he kind of summed that one up. But I think, again, my ancestor, King Robert the Bruce, was in a cave. He had given up pretty much. He knew that the whole of Scotland depended upon him alone. And he felt that he had lost his way to claiming the throne and protecting Scotland's identity and independence. And he watched a spider trying very hard to make its web. And it tried and tried and tried. And then finally it did achieve what it was trying to do. And he set what has been a really great and driving family motto, taught to me by my father on his knee. Robert the Bruce said, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. Excellent. What is your greatest memory in the military or your greatest achievement? I think my clearest memory was being told by our commanding officer that we were going to war. 
I think I was very, very excited, but it really did galvanize every element of one's training so far, who you were, and I felt very proud that I was part of this team. And the Scots Guards were a marvellous team, and my soldiers were like lions, and I was incredibly proud of what they had achieved and the standards that they had. And I remember going down in the QE2 liner, all the way down from Southampton, to Gripvican Harbour in South Georgia. And on the way, the gradual realisation that we weren't going to be garrison troops, but we were actually going to fight. And I went running around the deck one morning, very, very early, to try and get fit. And it was easier for me to do it early for all the intelligence duties that I had to do during the day. And this vast submarine came up out of the water beside us. And now we knew there were two Russian Guppy-class submarines that were out to try and find us. And we had soldiers who were very, very worried about that line in the Bible which says, he shall rise up out of the ocean having seven heads and ten horns, and and the number shall be 666 of the devil. And the British Forces Post Office had allocated us a number to put on all our letters, which was BFPO 666. And I think the soldiers really thought that that was dooming us, because Scotsmen know their Bible, or they did. And I was really alarmed when that submarine came up beside us. But of course, it had been one of our submarines, and it had been hiding underneath our pimple on the radars from the satellites. It had been hiding to come down and help support the overall task force. So I think that was quite a challenging moment. My moment of greatest success, I think, was undoubtedly when, as a more recent role, because I'm still in the Army Reserve, seeing the wonderful way in which the reserves that I'd helped train operated on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it really meant a lot to me, because I'd been to war at the age of 21. And here I was as a much older person, responsible for these bright-eyed young lads and young women. And it is a massive challenge to get them ready and get them ready to fight. But what's great is that they are full of that youthful enthusiasm to protect the people they love, their homes, their mothers and fathers, the environments in which they live. And that will always guide and drive every generation. But I think I was mostly proud of the fact that I have helped in the delivery of that capability. And I still try to do that. Right, absolutely. And it's very rewarding to be part of someone else's development and watching them grow and watching them succeed and then maybe years later seeing them take on a role that you never even thought they would aspire to. No, and I think that people don't realize what they've got in themselves. Everybody listening to this does not yet know what capability they have to deliver. And I think that especially men, but women too, are challenged by two very significant questions in life. Can I make love? And can I make war? Most people get the chance to answer the first, but the second one always niggles. It always sits in the background, particularly of a man who has a family around him that he must protect. If something happened, how would I react? Now, when I landed in Toronto to come to this great conference of the kilted regiments in Canada, I got off the aeroplane and I was taken to one side by the representative of the Toronto Scottish Regiment who'd come to collect me, and I was told that London had been attacked. And I had no awareness of this because my phone hadn't triggered up to the news or information. But again, it's that moment when you realise, and you know that the people who face that horrible moment will have wondered about their bravery, will have wondered about how they can, the fear, the danger. And it is in those situations when we really are challenged. And I've watched about the policeman who came forward and was stabbed to death. And I feel that sense of he can make war. He was courageous. He was one of the people who stood out and protected the community and looked after freedom and democracy. Now, what a tremendous accolade that is. And I shall do whatever I can 
to make sure that he is honoured properly by the United Kingdom. Because I'm in the business where I'm trying, like you are, to help people be brave. And it's a great question. Can you be brave? Well, in Canada and in the United States, we've adopted the warrior mindset. And with that, the emblem of that is called the sheepdog. And the sheepdog stands between the sheep, which is what we perceive as the public, those that are either unwilling to fight or incapable of fighting. For example, children, they're incapable of fighting. We wouldn't even expect that of them. And the wolf, which is the predator, whether it be a criminal or uh, enemy warrior, or whatever and that sheepdog mentality but a lot of people believe the sheepdog simply exists to counter the wolf but the sheepdog is also the guardian of the sheep and the sheep are afraid of if i follow the metaphor all the way to the end the sheep are afraid of the sheepdog because he looks like the wolf but that protector the ability to protect the flock and stand between the sheep and the wolf is what that sheepdog mentality is and a lot of well i wouldn't say a lot some people really fail to appreciate that yes we're there to fight the wolf but we're also there to be protectors of the sheep we certainly are and i think that going back to the idea of what everyone can do for the protection of their liberties and the freedoms particularly in canada and we're only a a short distance from where a terrorist attack was made upon your democracy and here we are celebrating its 150th anniversary It is always, all the institutions we have are in this modern world vulnerable to the aggressive, thoughtless acts of absolutely driven deliverers of terror. And I think that what everyone can do is they can do their best to support the sheepdogs, the people who are prepared to put on their uniform, the people who are prepared in the civil police or in the military to lay themselves in that position of the sheepdog. And they may look a bit frightening, but dear heaven, they're there to help And they're there to be nurtured and they're there to be given that little bit extra help within the society in which they live because they really are prepared to lay down their lives so that the sheep that you refer to can carry on grazing. And it is only when the sheep are grazing that the sheep dogs are content. Now we can move on to the next question. Who is your greatest influence in the military or the most memorable character that you've encountered during your service? Well, I think Lord Mountbatten was the greatest influence on me because he encouraged me to be interested in ceremony, but to see the ceremonies of a nation, and I'm an expert on British ceremony, how they play a part in both reflecting the martial tradition of a nation, i.e. what its armed forces have done, what its armed forces are there to do, and also the captivation within a sort of splendour that is theatrical and yet noble the history of your nation, the struggle of your people to gain the powers that are the democracy of today, and to nurture through it all an idea of what it means to be British, or in your case, what it means to be Canadian. I went on my wonderful visit that has been organised by the regiments who've been hosting me to visit Parliament here in Ottawa, and I met Black Rod. And Black Rod, who was a Canadian mounted policeman himself, is now carrying on a tradition that goes back to 1348 in England, when Edward III created the Order of the Garter and appointed to run it someone called Black Rod to make sure that the doors were safe and when the Knights of the Garter met that they would be able to meet in conclave without any danger. And when Henry VIII discovered that Black Rod was really not busy enough, he said, I tell you what, you go and run and look after the House of Lords. And that's what happened in Britain. And then when, of course, a legislature was established, here, the decision was to take a black rod and appoint one for Canada. There's a wonderful tradition there. And I find that still, in your Senate room, in your Senate chamber, there is still echoes of the traditional structures that used to exist in England way back in the Middle Ages. Now, you can get rid of that in a minute. You can throw all that sort of stuff away. But I learned from Lord Mountbatten 
who loved all this. He'd been Viceroy of India, he'd done much else besides. He'd been in the armed forces and quite a lot of that had been quite controversial. But he did understand that ceremony has a part to play in celebrating a nation and the armed forces can be part of that because they demonstrate the freedoms through which a democracy can work and they have always protected, first of all, the king, then the legislature, but always the people. And I find that that has been the most motivating element of both my military life and also my civilian life because I make television programs about history. I am a historian. I feel I'm very much a part of history and I want to deliver a bit of a better understanding for people to say he was the person who got me into the armed forces and the person who enthused me in all that area. And of course, the fact that he was murdered by the IRA uh, within days of me going to Sandhurst at the very beginning of my military career was quite poignant. Not to take away from your last point, I was kind of stuck on your first point and take it to the other end. The combination of tradition, ceremony, and you said the word theater. I always felt as a regimental sergeant major and to a lesser degree as a brigade sergeant major that I would look at the parade from the point of view of the spectator, not from the point of view of the commander or the point of view of the soldier on parade. I would look what is the spectator, the, this, our seated guests, our honored guests that we have their names on the chairs and they, we have a program for them? What are they going to see when they sit down at this parade? And I think that people who plan parades or plan events to some degree, not, not all, have an appreciation that it's, uh, they, they look in the drill manual and they look at the rehearsal schedule and they don't really take a moment to look at it from the point of view of the spectator or the point of view of our honored guests. And I always enjoy a parade that includes a little bit of spectacle, a little bit of uh, capabilities demonstration. For example, when the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment hosted the Duke of Edinburgh for their presentation of colors, they had a skills demonstration at the beginning of the parade. So the audience wasn't simply there to watch some pieces of fabric become consecrated into regimental colors, but they got to see some skills demonstration. Here are some soldiers on patrol. Here are some soldiers repelling off a building. Here are some soldiers parachuting into the area. And then let's get on with the parade. Now we can go to the drill manual and do the ceremonial portion, but let's make it a spectacle. Let's make it, like you said, theatrical. And I and I always look for that in a parade. And are they simply sticking to the format and sticking to the template that's written down in the book? Or are they adding some flavor, making it unique to their own unit, their own experience? Well, I think, you know, the theatre does reach out. And you refer to the VIPs or the people who are watching in the stands. For me, what really matters is that 17-year-old Canadians who don't understand what we're doing and who you need to try and inspire and educate that the structure of a parade has a utilitarian output. And you say it might be the consecration of colours. But once they see that it's all about the unification of a body of capability, ready to do what it's told when it's told to do it, and that it's there for them. And perhaps one day, one of them might want to join it. Then we're getting people into the value of that theatre. But again, the theatre it is, is generally outstandingly impressive because the wonderful thing about the martial tradition that both Britain and Canada shares is that it's not aggressively uncomfortable to watch. It's not like watching the Gestapo marching past Hitler in the 1930s, goose-stepping in that ferocious and almost oppressive way. There's something much, much more gentle and yet resolute about British and Canadian drill. And I hope that that captivates the mind of the 17-year-old Canadian and makes them feel, yes, that's cool. That's really cool. And being in the armed forces is cool. One of the things that you met Colonel Hobbs last night, he's a previous guest on the show. 
one of the things that he said that stuck with me is that an officer who's incapable of leading a parade and leading formed troops on the parade square has no business leading troops in the field or in battle. Now, I know that the British Army has a lot of memorable characters in it, and I'm sure you have crossed paths with maybe one or two. Can you recall any memorable characters that you have encountered during your service? Maybe you could share an anecdote or a story? Yes, I will never forget Drill Sergeant Danny White of the Scots Guards, who came with the 2nd Battalion down to the Falklands War, but had always been preparing us for drill and responsibilities like what we call public duties, ceremonial duties at Buckingham Palace and elsewhere in London. And as a young officer, I used to love it when I was leading my St. James's Palace detachment into the gates of Buckingham Palace and the pipes would strike up with Heel and Laddie. And you felt so proud and the soldiers you could see ahead of you were just swaying with the glory of the moment. And Drill Sergeant Danny Wright got us all ready for that. And I always remember that he used to give us a pretty hard time as young officers to get us into line and looking smart. We did spring drills, which were terrifyingly exhausting. But always before a parade, he'd shout, Here we go! And that sound of, here we go, it just lifted us all up. It was the way of saying, come on, look, we've done all the rehearsals, but now here we really go. And I felt that, in a sense, that same sound is said by a platoon sergeant to the men and is what I heard said to men prior to going into battle in places like the Falklands War. And it is that motivation that the sergeant particularly, and in my case I'm talking about a drill sergeant who is slightly more senior and at battalion level, actually generates that will to be your best. Now the tragedy is that in the Falklands War, he was part of the diversionary attack to help the battalion get onto the mountain of Tumbledown, and he was killed. And it had an enormous impact on us all. And I remember when we came back to Chelsea Barracks in London, There was that missing sound before our next parade of here we go. But you know, we did go, but we always could hear it, even though he wasn't there to shout it. Absolutely. What a great story. So we've come to the final question. What is the greatest challenge you've had to overcome during your service? And I I know you've already told us some pretty challenging moments, so it's hard to imagine something more challenging than what you've already said. Well, it's probably a bit of a surprise. It's quite a consistent challenge, and I've never really overcome it. And that is the six-foot wall. Now, anyone who knows the basics of military training will know that a soldier in full kit has to run towards a six-foot wall and get over it. I've never been able to do that. Not once. I've always tried. I ran forward. I jumped up at it with my leg and it just fell back. And I could never work out how to actually get over. And I remember standing in front of my first platoon when I took command of it after just joining the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards, 13 platoon. And I said to them, look, there's two things you need to know about me. I can't get over the six foot wall and I need to wear glasses. And I think it was the right thing to do because after about two or three days, I think I must have earned a little bit of trust and respect from the soldiers because three of them came to see me and said, sir, we've got a plan of how to get you over the six foot wall. And the wonderful thing was I always used to declare to soldiers I work with that I can't get over the six foot wall. But now I always used to tell them how others could help. You know, that's teamwork. Now, there were other things I couldn't do. Now, it may not seem the greatest challenge, but you know, to me personally, It's been a great failure, and I still, to this day, can't personally, on my own, get over the six-foot wall. Wow, well, it's great that your soldiers were willing to rise to the occasion and help you out with your challenge. What I could do, and I found this at my training establishment, I was very good at polishing. My goodness, I can bring up the finest sheen on good leather. And I used to occasionally help out my soldiers when they were having real trouble. You mix and you match, and you help them with what they're doing, and they'll help you with what you're doing. And right in the, in the heat of battle, you do need 
to depend upon that kind of mutuality of capability. Just because you're the officer doesn't mean that you're necessarily imbued with all the skills. There are some that you might not have. Be honest. Tell your soldiers what you can't do, and you'll be amazed what they'll do to help you do it. I agree. I agree. What's next for you now? Well, I continue to be a broadcaster. I continue to be a soldier. I'm the deputy commander of the United Kingdom 3rd Division, looking after the reservists who are in it. I've been doing that for two years. I've got another year to go. And I very, very, very much want to try and achieve promotion to Major General before I leave the Army. I may not achieve it. It's the competitive world that we're in. But I think I've done my best. I've laid my reports before the boards, and they will consider that in due course. Uh, There's a job that I'd absolutely love to do, and that is to be Governor of Edinburgh Castle. Why? Well, because I'm a Bruce. And I think to be a Bruce in the castle at the seat of the centre of Scottish history would be the greatest honour, not just for me, but when I look back at all the soldiers I've had the privilege of commanding, most of whom have been Scots, I think to have the chance to serve the nation and to serve the Queen as the governor of her principal fortress in Scotland, what a wonderful way to salute not only those soldiers I've had the privilege of leading, but particularly the four who I lost in the Falklands War in 1982. I've had the opportunity to visit Edinburgh Castle, and I really enjoyed it. It was a good opportunity. It was a nice visit. It was led by the seal of seven Scots of the Royal Regiment of Scotland, Lieutenant Colonel Little, a great friend, introduced to him through a mutual friend, the seal of the 48th Highlanders of Canada, and they introduced us in a very nice place, very nice to visit. And unfortunately, there were no ceremonies or pageantry going on at the time, but I know that they do have quite memorable spectacles that happen, ceremonies and tattoos and things of that nature. I'd like to give you a chance to summarize your episode? Well, I suppose I summarize anything that I do by looking at what the achievement has been. And of course, I don't know what I've achieved here. But I have had the chance of looking back with you over my military career, things that have meant a lot to me. And I think I've been able to say how much I believe it's important to motivate young Canadians to be aware of to understand and to see what is vital about having armed forces that are tuned and trained and ready to deliver violence against the Queen of Canada's enemies. And that's been my challenge throughout life. I don't know whether my particular take on it or my aspirations and my continued desire to go on serving is of any use particularly. But I hope that just as I have walked around Ottawa and been to Toronto in the last few days, immediately following a massive shock to Britain with the terrorist attack in London. I hope that those people who are listening or who are interested will just see it does matter to serve. It does bring huge rewards service. And on the whole, those of us who have had the privilege of doing it, we need to know that most people who don't do it won't understand anything we do. But I think they do have a quiet recognition, all of us. What would I do in a dangerous situation? And I ask every listener, would you be brave? Absolutely, sir. Now, I'm very happy to have met you here. We're both in a very fortuitous position in the fact that we've recently lost the Regimental Secretary of the London Scottish, Mr. Stuart Young, and it's left a gap both on your side of the pond and my side, whereas it's the purchaser of Regimental Kit for the Toronto Scottish Regiment. I really don't have that link that is lost with uh, Stuart's passing. However, you don't have the mentor of all the previous corporate knowledge of the London Scottish Regiment. So us meeting here and, and having a chance to go to dinner and socialize and participate in the conference this weekend, that's going to help mend the gap that is left by Stuart's passing and I'm very appreciative of your visit and that we can start to build that bridge across the great ocean and continue our partnership and our regimental alliance. 
Well, thank you very much. And your regiment and my regiment have two very good mottos. I'll start with mine. Let's strike sure. And I know that yours takes us forward far more effectively. Let's carry on. Thank you for doing the interview. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com or leave a comment on the Facebook page. While you're waiting for the next episode, please visit the webpage at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the Canadian Military History Podcast Facebook page. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. All views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily represent the views of the Government of Canada, the Department of National Defence, or Mike Lacroix Productions. All recordings are copyright Mike Lacroix Productions. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.